In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. In spite of all that is going on in our world these days, the truth is ours is still a many-splendored universe. Or to use the Chinese metaphor, it's a world of 10,000 things. Which means, quite practically, that we are faced with a myriad of options in every direction. We are constantly having to make value judgments. The late Carl R. Marnie was fond of saying, there is really no agony in life worse than the moment that you realize I've paid too much. That is, I look at what I have, I look at what it took to get it, and I realize the incredible disparity between those two. And at that point, a profound sense of disappointment comes over us. Uh, I would be surprised, in all honesty, if if there is an adult among us uh, who is a stranger to that kind of experience. So we have no more fundamental task than facing up to this variety of options and having to decide what is worth what. On the one hand, of course, we can pay too much. We confuse something that is of relative value with something that is of absolute value. On the other hand, um, we can... uh, choose something that is of absolute value and we can organize our life around those choices. Which I think is exactly what Jesus was pointing to in our three parables this morning. So he chooses to use images that were familiar to his hearings. There was not a peasant alive at that time who would have had trouble understanding Jesus' stories this morning. So the first of those images, the discovery of buried treasure, was not as unusual as you might think. Many a farmer had had the experience of plowing their land and discovering a box or a chest filled with coins or trinkets. Remember that for centuries, invading armies had come through Israel's land. It's the bridge between three different continents. So the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans had all taken turns occupying the Holy Land. People who lived through those invasions soon learned that the earth was the only safe place where they could store their possessions. So when word got out that another foreign army was approaching, the soil of Israel became pockets where they stashed their treasure. Of course, the people who took those precautions uh, were sometimes killed by those invaders. And the treasure was then left in the earth only to be discovered later, quite accidentally, by somebody else. So many of Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with those kinds of stories. The second of Jesus' images uh, focuses on the particular jewel that was most valued in the first century. So diamonds had been discovered, but they were so rare that they really didn't play much part in Mediterranean culture. The pearl was preeminent. It's said that Cleopatra, 
The queen of the Nile had several of them, one of them valued at over $3 million in our current currency. Now, as you know, the pearl uh, is, is very different in its origin from other precious stones. A pearl develops when a grain of sand finds its way into the shell of an oyster and then cuts that tender membrane to the quick. In reaction to that intrusion, the little organism secretes this milky substance that softens the sharp edges around that particle of sand. In due time, someone comes along and finds the shell, opens it up, and discovers a precious pearl, a monument, if you will, to the whole process of pain. So it's not surprising why the ancient world valued the pearl as a symbol of hope, a reminder that even bad things can give birth to surprisingly good things. And that's an image that was not lost on our biblical writers. You'll remember in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation to John, he describes heaven, and the entranceway is called the pearly gates. Why? Because we are reminded as we enter that we do so only because of the created suffering of a God who genuinely cares, of a Savior who came to die on our behalf. So in Jesus' story, a tradesman, a well-trained eye, recognizes the most exquisite of all pearls, and he responds accordingly. The third of Jesus' images grew out of the work of fishermen. Again, no surprise to the people who lived around the Sea of Galilee. And these folks, on a daily basis, would take two boats out. They would row to a particular part of the lake. They would drop their nets between the boats and then slowly row towards the shore. When they got close to the banks, uh, they would drag those nets up on shore and would literally sit there and sort out those that were edible and sellable from those that needed to be thrown back. So all three of these have a common theme, the task of discerning what is worth what. How can we avoid paying too much for something? And on the other hand, how can we find the true summum bonum, the value above all values? In a little book called Flux and Fidelity, Kyle Hazelton says that we human beings differ widely across the ages, but there are two basic drives that remain constant for all of us. One of those, of course, is self-preservation. Uh, a healthy person wants to live on. The other is yearning to fulfill ourselves, to actualize our potential. But Notice that in both of these cases, it is absolutely crucial to be able to discern the relative value of things. In other words, when the summum bonum comes along and is recognized, it changes how we evaluate everything. It is not just another thing on the list. It determines how we prioritize everything on our list in our lives. If you stop and think about it, 
every experience of change has two different aspects. On the one hand, of course, we get something that we didn't have. On the other hand, we have to give up something that we did have. At the most basic of levels, that's what change does. And in these first two parables, Jesus is saying that healthy change occurs when we discover that the thing that is being offered is greater than the thing that we have to be giving up. But that is by no means all that these parables are meant to teach us. Jesus is returning here to a theme that runs throughout his teachings. He's lifting up for us again uh, the first commandment uh, from the tablets that were given to Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So what is the sumum bonum, the value above all values? Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is the reality of God's presence in all, God's rule over all. Jesus is so clear. As God's children, we must never expect anything or anyone that derives its life from the creator to be able to satisfy all of our needs. Even the best of things, that is so important to realize that even the best of things, uh, a healthy relationship, a successful career, a loving family, nothing is able to support the full weight of our expectations. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So the kingdom of heaven is to the discerning heart exactly what that buried treasure is to the one who finds it. Exactly what that exquisite pearl was to the connoisseur. Ultimate attachment to anything or anyone is ultimately disappointing. And what the Bible calls idolatry. Well, how then do we begin to discern our way into recognizing what is and what is not of ultimate worth? Well, history suggests that most of us do this by trial and error. But years ago, I read a little book by Bernard of Clairvaux. It's called On Loving God. Bernard had spent most of his ministry observing the spiritual growth of hundreds of monks. And he came up with four stages of spiritual development, which have been very helpful to me, and I suspect would be helpful to all of us as we are trying to discern what is really worth what. So Bernard describes stage one as the love of self for self's sake. In reality, this is where we all begin our spiritual journeys. We are aware of our own needs and really nothing else. As we get older, the psychological term for that is narcissism, and it doesn't begin to satisfy us. C.S. Lewis once wrote about being awakened in the middle of the night, this was during his bachelor days, and having trouble falling back to sleep. 
He said it was totally dark and utterly still in his bedroom there at Magdalen College in England. He wasn't able to perceive anything beyond himself. Suddenly, he said, he sat bolt upright in bed because it dawned on him that such isolation was the logical end of a self-centered life. What if, he found himself asking, what if we get in eternity exactly what we have lived for in time? So if we have loved others, if we have given ourselves to causes beyond ourselves, then we will continue to participate in all that kind of richness. But if we have lived only for ourselves, if all of our thoughts and energies revolve around me, could it be that that's all that we will get? We have no choice in beginning our journeys at that stage. We do have a choice as to whether or not we remain there. Now, the second stage is what Bernard calls the love of God for self's sake. Now, notice there is here an awareness that there is something beyond ourselves, but the focus is still very much on me. In other words, I love God, but primarily because of what God can do for me. And Bernard observed that stage two is about as far as most people ever get. They are aware of God, but primarily as a way of fulfilling their own agendas. And this, truth be told, is, is the reality, the theology behind the prosperity gospel. And I think if we're honest, we recognize some of ourselves here as well. I knew a woman years ago who lost her child to a very serious illness. She had tried everything she knew to try to get God to intervene in healing her child. But when that did not occur, uh, she became incredibly bitter. In other words, when she could not get God to jump through her hoops, she promptly broke off diplomatic relations and she became an angry cynic which as often as not is what comes from loving God for self's sake. Because as the scripture teaches us, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our own. So although this represents real progress from spiritual narcissism, it too ultimately will not satisfy the needs of our heart. Now, Bernard's third stage, I think, represents a quantum leap forward. He calls it the love of God for God's sake. And here we begin to sense that God has value, not just in terms of what God can do for me, but in terms of who God intrinsically is. In other words, there are reasons to worship God that have nothing to do with my own needs. In fact, 
This is a huge part of what worship is. It's worthship. It's declaring, God, you are worthy of my time and my praise. So I come to worship not just to uh, pick up a message that will be useful to me in the week ahead. I come not just to thank God for what God has done for me. I come to thank God for being God. A friend, a colleague, um, told me a while back about a wonderful memory he has of his little daughter when she was all of four years old. Apparently he was in their den early on a Saturday morning, probably putting the final touches on his sermon, and uh, she slipped in quietly, still in her PJs, and without a word, um, crawled up on his lap and laid her head on his shoulder. I'm really glad to see you, he said to her. What, what can I do for you? What, what do you want? She paused for a moment and then said, nothing. I just wanted to be close to you. That's all. Well, you can understand why that image is so precious to him. On the other hand, it pains me to think how rarely I go into the presence of God without any agenda except to say, I just wanted to be with you and thank you for who you are. That's the love of God for God's sake. Now, truth be told, if it were up to me, that's where it would have ended. Love of God for God's sake, that sounds pretty good to me, and it makes for a great three-point sermon. So imagine my shock when Bernard said there was actually a fourth stage, which he calls the love of self for God's sake. And I admit that initially I didn't get it, until later I began to discover the wisdom. So think about it. Who is the most difficult person in the world for you to love, to affirm, and to really celebrate? If your experience is anything like mine, the answer to that question is yourself. How much of our time is spent with thoughts like, well, if only I had different hair, or if only I could lose a little weight, or if only I was in such and such kind of relationship, or if only I had this or that. Thoughts like, if they really knew who I was, they would never. Now, I would like to say that that is just a healthy dose of humility. But the truth is, I think we often don't believe that God really knew what God was doing when God created us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to say that whenever he was down on himself, when he was not able to be all he knew that he should be, what saved him was remembering, I am baptized. I have been chosen. I am already loved and forgiven and precious in the eyes of God. So the same words that God spoke over the creation at the beginning of time, God speaks over you. It is good. It is very good. God so loved the world, which means that God so loves you, 
that he sent his only son. What that means in each of these parables, you see, is that each one of us, by virtue of God's amazing grace, is the treasure buried in the field, is the pearl of great price, the valuable fish that should be kept. And so the way to fulfillment lies in affirming, in owning deep down that what God did in creation, what God did in creating you was very good. In letting that become our joy. Just as surely as the farmer, the merchant, the fisherman found their joy in what they discovered. Here is the summum bonum. In God's eyes, we are, each of us, a treasure, a pearl of great price, a keeper. And in your own eyes this morning, I'm wondering, how do you see yourself? Amen. Amen.